So last week we looked at the Pentecost event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. It just describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on 120 disciples who were in the upper room. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they speak in foreign languages um, because it was the feast of Pentecost, Jews and proselytes from all over the known world gathered in Jerusalem. They heard a strange phenomenon, a group of Galileans, perhaps with an accent, who knows, speaking in their own languages, declaring the mighty deeds of God. The end of that text describes two reactions. Some were mocking saying, uh, thinking that those 120 uh, disciples were probably drunk with wine. Others ask, what does this mean? Our text today, Acts 2, verse 14 through 36, answers that question. What does this mean? It is Peter's second speech in the book of Acts. The first one was in Acts chapter 1. And in this speech, he does exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do. He bears witness to the resurrection. He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit for the expansion of the kingdom of God, beginning in Jerusalem. The rest of the book of Acts is going to be this over and over in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But this Witnessing to the resurrection begins here in Jerusalem. In his speech, Peter does three things. Um, So first, he's going to show that the event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fulfills prophecy. That's why we read Joel chapter 2. Second part of the speech, he's going to preach Christ. He's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to talk about his ministry. He's going to talk about the miracles. He's going to talk about the fact that some of his hearers were guilty of having him killed. But then he quickly transitions. God raised him from the dead. And the third element in the speech, Peter's going to declare that God has made this Jesus Lord over all things. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to study this speech in three movements. But before we do that, I want to touch on a technical issue um, that maybe you've asked this question before, maybe you haven't, but it seems like careful readers of the book of Acts get troubled by the way the Psalms get applied to the life of Jesus or Jesus's ministry. So in Acts 1, uh, Peter used Psalm 69 verse 25 to show that the scriptures foretold that Judas was going to buy a land that would become unused. Peter also uses Psalm 109 verse 8 to show that they had to replace Judas So you may go and read back at those verses and wonder, how did Peter come up with those conclusions? So you you have a choice to make. You can say, well, it's the Bible. I got to believe it. But they're not really being faithful to the original intent. 
or maybe something else is going on here. And that same phenomenon happens in Acts 2. So that the original context of those verses in Acts 1 that Paul takes, uh, that Peter takes from the Psalms, it seems that David is pronouncing a curse on his own enemies. That's what the context seems to teach. But then we'll see it again here in Acts, the way Peter uses the Psalms, which do not seem to be about a Messiah, get applied to Jesus. I want to talk about that phenomenon a little bit, if you were ever confused by it. This is what I think is most likely going on. Um, The book of Psalms, there's 150 poems or songs. Um, It's one book. The first two Psalms are introductory Psalms, and then there are five books within the book of Psalms. So when you take these Psalms individually, they mean exactly what they say according to the historical context in which they were written in. And so the Psalms belong to the people of Israel, the Psalms belong to the church today. The people can borrow these Psalms and appropriate these the words of the Psalms for their personal worship and also for their own prayers. Helpful tool. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. God has given us a prayer book in the Bible. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit more technical. Psalms gain an extra layer of meaning when we study them in the context of the book of Psalms as a whole. And so when you read Psalms, some of them, a lot of them, seem to be about David's own personal struggles. When you read the book of Psalms as a whole, the further you get in the book, it seems to be pointing to a a greater expectation of a new David who is to come. And so if we take the book of Psalms as a whole, when we understand the trajectory from first David to the second greater David, we see that what becomes true of the first David can also be anticipated in some ways about the second. And so if we study the book, the individual Psalms within the context of the book as a whole with the trajectory pointing from first David to second David, it becomes then appropriate to take Psalms about the first David and apply them in a greater way to the second David. And so this is how the book of Psalms itself teaches us to read the Psalms about even about David with a messianic lens. Okay, that was kind of technical. I didn't find that in any uh, commentaries for the book of Acts. It was really reading a kind of academic books on the Psalms for Christians. Um, and I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense to me. And so, but this is going to be important when we study how New Testament authors study um, or, or apply the Old Testament, and particularly in our text. Um, we saw that Peter has three movements, and three times he's applying the Old Testament to uh, the ministry of Jesus to make his argument. Okay, so now we're going to dig into the actual speech. Um, the first movement is um, in verses 14 through 21. Peter argues from the start that those who are speaking in tongues cannot be drunk 
because it's way too early in the day for that. Rather, what is happening? They have just witnessed the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, the prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2 verses 28 to 32 prophesy that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, sons, daughters, young men, elders, male and female. And Joel foresaw that they would prophesy that they would see dreams and visions. There were going to be signs in the heavens, uh, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. And all of this was going to happen before the great day of the Lord. In quoting Joel 2, Peter is declaring that the last days have begun. The last days is the era in which the Holy Spirit has been poured out. This is the last period in redemptive history before the return of Christ to bring the final state, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so that means we are living in the last days and we have been for the last 2000 almost 2,000 years. I guess 2033 uh, will be, or a little bit before that, will be the beginning of the last days. We are in the last days. All the events that Joel prophesied leading up to the great day of the Lord, which is Jesus' second coming, occur in the book of Acts. There are prophecies, dreams, and visions. As far as the cosmic signs, like the the darkened sun, the blood moons, this is common apocalyptic images. Um, It is language of cosmic upheaval. So in Isaiah 13, verse 10, um, the darkening of the stars, the sun and the moon, was described the fall of Babylon. Uh, Jesus used similar images to refer to the destruction of the temple that occurred in AD 70. Um, This is apocalyptic language that describes the collapse of a political system. Since the stars did not literally fall down from the sky um, with the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of the temple, it's unlikely uh, that we should expect a literal blood moons or that the stars would fall down before Christ's return. Rather, uh, a change in political system affects all areas of life in such a way that biblical authors describe them in terms of cosmic upheaval. It teaches that the events are so significant that even the sun and the moon were shaken by them. This doesn't take away that some of the things are literal. Like when Jesus died on the cross, like there was darkness. along That was not um, figurative language. But generally, this kind of language of um, the, the stars falling down has been used about past events in the Bible. And so it's probably more a way of, of just expressing such a radical change in um, a political system. And so in this case, this uh, cosmic upheaval elements from Joel um, refer to the events of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is such a radical change uh, from the perspective of the kingdom of God. With all these events, it has come with 
power. And so these images are appropriate to describe the change that just took place with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. An application that we can draw from Peter's quote of Job uh, is when he says, when Job was anticipating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he expected it to be poured out on all flesh. And then Peter ends the quote by saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is both the greatest news we could hear, but it's also got a pretty offensive component to it. It's the best news because it means no one is off limit. No sin, no horrific deed, no shameful thing can make anyone beyond the reach of God's grace. Great news for all of us. Now here's the offensive part. This means that in Christ, God can forgive even mass murderers, even serial killers, even your evil boss, even anyone in your life who is making your life hard. Sometimes that is offensive. Our flesh wants to tell us that we're okay. God can forgive us. But maybe other people's sins, no, no, no. They can't just get a free pass. That is part of the offensiveness of the gospel. No one is beyond God's reach. Life in the Spirit is available today for all. This life in the Spirit is a life of transformation that produces healthy church communities. Healthy churches marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, when you hear this, you're like, well, that hasn't been my experience of church. And sadly, yes, too often the church has been an environment where wounding takes place. The church is guilty of gossip, judgment, manipulation, abuse. It's guilty also of neglecting its flock. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, a church can be a community characterized by the work of the Spirit. So we want to be a safe place where transformation takes place. Right doctrine, right behavior are important, but what matters in a Spirit-filled community is transformation by the Spirit. So as we submit to God and commit to one another, the Spirit works through each one of us to minister to one another. And as we love people who suffer, as we love people who are different than us, remember the Spirit is on all flesh, which is going to include people very different from you and I. But when we love each other, we bear witness to the, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, and we bear witness to the power of the resurrection in Christ. When we look different from the, the world beyond these walls that does not know uh, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Second point. Um, so now we're going to be moving to the second movement in verses 22 through 28, where Peter is just going to talk about Jesus. Peter says nothing, le- nothing more about the Holy Spirit in this section. He just speaks about Jesus. A church that is filled with the Holy Spirit will do likewise. It focuses on Jesus. The Spirit is a spotlight 
on Jesus, a spotlight on our need for Christ. And so Peter's going to discuss Jesus's public ministry, his execution, his resurrection, and also claim that all along, God was sovereign over all these events. In verses 22 and 23, Peter speaks of Jesus's miracles. Peter says they were a sign of God's approval. A lot of Jesus's miracles have parallels in the Old Testament or were connected with prophecies about the Messiah. So in these ways, the miracles that Jesus performed confirmed his identity as the Messiah. Peter tells his hearers that they witnessed some of those miracles, which means Peter's putting himself in a very awkward situation. It just would have taken one person to speak up to say that Jesus was a fake for his credibility to be in danger. Here, Peter is not appealing to his great eloquence as a preacher. He's not appealing to emotion. He's appealing to his hearers very own experience. He wants them to understand the significance of the events that have just occurred. Verse 23, Peter shifts to Jesus's death and says it was part of God's plan all along. But he also accuses his hearers of killing Jesus. They killed him by sending him to the Romans for execution. It's highly probable that some in that crowd would have been part of the crowd who demanded that Pilate would crucify Jesus. But beyond this, we all have a role in Jesus's death. He died for sins. He died because of what we have done. And so in a way, we are also guilty of the death of Christ. But Peter does not linger there. He shifts from our guilt to the work of God. In verse 24, Peter declares that God raised him. Death was not able to keep him. What he does is he quotes Psalm 16. He does that in verses 25 to 28 to show that the scriptures foresaw that the Messiah would be raised. So this fits in the pattern that I shared earlier, where the original psalm had a me- the meaning of the original author, and it, it seems to be about David. It seems to be that David will enjoy eternal life. But because of the organization of the book of Psalms, which points forward to the coming of a new David, a greater David, the Messiah, which the first David pointed to, What is said about David at times can be applied to the Messiah. So if David knew that he would be in the presence of God forever, then how much more will Christ be? Peter goes further to say that this text applies more to Christ than to David because David died and everyone knows where his tomb is. Christ's resurrection is great news for us. One of the most important doctrines in the New Testament is union with Christ. In a mysterious way, it teaches that um, believers, as we are united with Christ, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We celebrate this with a baptism or at the Lord's Supper because Christ died for sin 
we died for sin. Because he rose from the grave, we will rise from the grave. And so in this way, though Psalm 16, 8 to 11, originally spoke of David's eternal life, in a greater way, it speaks of Christ's resurrection. And now, as we are in Christ, this text can also apply to us. And so we can say, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. We're holy in Christ. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. We can apply Psalm 16 to ourselves as well as we are in Christ. That means we can endure all things in this life. Abuse, injustice, bullies, sickness, grief, barrenness, bereavement, neglect, knowing that even our death will not have the last word. Resurrection will. That's what we learned from our union with Christ, that we can celebrate the fact that Christ was raised from the grave. Finally, in the third point, verses 29 to 36, uh, Peter focuses on Christ's lordship. So Peter here quotes another psalm, Psalm 110. Verses 1 and 2 in verse in Acts 2, 34 to 35. Just by the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, in it, David refers to two individuals, the Lord and my Lord. He writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I might place your enemies under your feet. This gets a little bit tricky, how Peter is using both Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 together. Step one, because Jesus rose from the grave, Psalm 16 is about him, and he's also the Messiah. Psalm 16 also says that the Messiah is at the Father's right hand. Step three, Psalm 110 declares that the one who is at the Father's right hand is the Lord. Sorry, that was a little bit complicated. But Peter is interweaving these scriptures to make his arguments to people that were very familiar with the Bible. Therefore, the one, Peter's, um, the one Peter's here is killed is the Lord himself. They are guilty of killing the Messiah who is Lord over all things. So Peter really here turns up the intensity no one questions that uh, the point that the Jews sent Jesus to be killed. But Peter is explaining the identity of the one they killed. He was a miracle worker because God approved of him. And it gets worse. This one they crucified is Lord and is reigning at the Father's right hand. And this will be the case until all his enemies are placed under his feet. They could not have killed anyone more important. This is the biggest mistake anyone could ever make. If you attack your judge, you are in serious trouble if they are alive and are, and, and are responsible for your judgment. And so Peter ends his message on Jesus' lordship. If we connect Joel 2 
and Psalm 110, as Peter does, we see that on one hand, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And on the other hand, Jesus is that Lord. Peter will make this very explicit in the next chapter. But for now, we have an, ex- an application. The mistake of crucifying Jesus in the first century is still being made today by those who do not recognize Christ as Lord. And in the same way that even those responsible for killing Jesus had good news, we also have good news today. We must all submit to Christ's Lordship. So for those who don't yet believe in Jesus, it begins by evaluating the biblical truths about Jesus. And also, I want to encourage you to evaluate the transformation you observe in a church community. Okay, very risky in light of how bad the church's track record is. But if God is real and the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, there should be a difference. We, sh- we, are, we should witness the Spirit's work in a church community. Now, for those who do believe, until we die or Jesus returns, we need to continue to evaluate our lives and surrender more to Christ's Lordship. This is true for us in all areas of life. We must submit to him with our finances, our desires, our ego, our preferences. All along, we remember what a good, kind, and gracious Lord he is who takes care of us. And so now we can submit to him with great joy. So to conclude, this was Peter's uh, Pentecost sermon. He has borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He used Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and he applied those, uh, those Old Testament texts to his own day to show that Joel's prophesied, as Joel prophesied the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred in his day. And this Messiah that, Jesus, uh, that David foresaw in the Psalms was Jesus himself, who did not see corruption. This Messiah that they killed is now Lord of all. His reign will continue to expand until his return to judge the living and the dead. Um, We join in this expansion. We join his kingdom by celebrating the work of Christ. We need to hate our sin. We need to hate the fact that we are the agents of harm. We have all harmed people. We need to hate that. We need to love the Savior. We need to celebrate Christ as we are part of a a community of believers. And we join in the expansion of Christ's reign by living in submission to his reign. Um, as, and also as acknowledging the fact that in the church we are already a, a new creation community. That's what the church is. We continue to announce the great news of the forgiveness of sins to anyone who will hear us. Let's pray.